There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Boris. Now, before I get into this week's podcast, I want to let you know about something that's really exciting coming up early next year. I think it's like late February. And I'm going to call this the Mentor Masterclass. So if you're listening because you own a business or just have a bloody brilliant idea, come along to this live event. It's suited to anyone at any stage of any business, basically all comers. The link is in the podcast description, so make sure you check it out. Now today, I'm joined by Captain Richard DeCrepney. He's a Qantas pilot, and he's famous for navigating the QF32 through explosions and a mid-air crisis over Singapore and landing the plane safely. Everyone got off safely. Richard is one of my earliest guests on my podcast when I first started doing this many years ago, and I'm really excited to have him back and hear what's happened since then. Richard is an expert on training the brain to become more resilient, and the skills that go into proving your decision-making and, of course, crisis management. Now, that is imperative skill for anyone in business, small, medium, or large. I want to talk about how he applies this to people in business, from global CEOs all the way through to small business owners and proprietors. We're going to talk about risk assessment, decision-making, leadership, and resilience. So let's get into this really exciting one. Richard DeCrepney, welcome to The Mentor. Mark, thanks for having me. Great Welcome to back. be back. Oh, it's yeah. fantastic to be back after Welcome. a few years. Yeah, it is a few years. And, uh, or should I say, Captain Richard DeCrypney. You, still oh, you flying? can call me whatever you like. Still flying? I, I, you're still flying. I'm yeah. still loving it. I'm, I'm flying to London in, in a few days' time. Right. Uh, so you say you are still on Qantas and flying Qantas? Still airplane. Qantas, passionate A380 uh, pilot, love the airplane. Love. I still walk the, the aisles, talk to the passengers. It's a, it's a great to meet them. You know, everything about aviation is just a buzz and a high. It's a high to meet people. It's a buzz to do the technology. It's a buzz to be in an industry that's adapting and modifying all the time to, to meet the disruption. And last time you and I uh, did this podcast, which was a couple of years ago now, um, we talked about, and it was just around the launch of your book, and we talked about QF32. And not everybody, I mean, I've got a much bigger audience these days, and not everyone has heard the story. I, I just, I don't want to hang around that story, but I do want you to sort of relate the story just quickly to everybody. What happened on the QF32? Because it's really important yeah, I think forward. a lot of people, it's, it's eight years ago, so many people may not know it. QF32 turned out to be a great example of resilience, um, of teamwork resilience. So eight years ago, we were flying an Airbus A380, which is the biggest, largest commercial aircraft in the sky. Magnificent fly-by-wire, 
$400 million worth. We can license to take 853 passengers. It's big in every dimension. It's a remarkable aircraft. But on this day, four minutes after takeoff, engine number two exploded. 500 pieces of shrapnel hit the airplane. 21 out of 22 systems were affected. We had about 15 holes in the fuel tanks in many locations. We spent two hours in the air to resolve over 100 checklists that we did to work out what we would have left to land with. And that was important on an electronic machine to work out what it will give you later. And then even on the ground, one pilot thought it was more dangerous on the ground than in the air. So we had to manage new threats of how to get the passengers off without being injured. So we walked them down the stairs two hours later after landing, no injuries, and then another two hours in the terminal where I gave full and open disclosure and a personal guarantee. So that's telling people what happened, why, what was about to happen, what we needed them to do. And I gave them my mobile phone number so there was a single point of contact. They could ring me, ask questions, and so that generated trust. So after six hours, the passengers left the terminal with no injuries after a really significant event that was beyond to the 10 to the 9 limit that we certify aircraft to meet. So it was an unknown unknown for aviation. The passengers left the terminal the most as strong advocates for our airline. So this is an example of a crisis where we, ex- we came out of that crisis, perhaps trauma for many, with a brand stronger than when we went in. It was a great example of resilience. That's, uh, I think you're being um, uh, rather modest. Um, well, it was team. It was team resilience. Yeah, yeah. But but I mean, yeah, be a, you were the captain on the plane. That's true. But <clears throat> but a captain, the 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 CEO is he's a conductor. He doesn't do the work. He tells people what to do. He delegates. He the first expertise at the coalface. So how many people were in the in the front of the plane, or how many people do you defer? We to? had about four hundred and forty, and we had a crew of twenty nine. So right. I'm the I'm the captain. I'm the conductor. I'm giving instructions. A leader during a crisis should sit back and drink a cup of tea or coffee. Just relax, think, keep situation awareness, see everything. Don't text and distract yourself. Just delegate everything. Keep an open mind, have a full awareness of everything that's happening. Predict what's going to happen. This is what you do in a crisis. You've got to keep calm and you let people at the coalface do do the work. So that's why a leader is a conductor. It's the musicians that make the music. That's why a success in a crisis is the team's success and a failure by definition, is the leader's fault. Where'd you get that train from? Where did you understand that from? I mean, we, <clears throat> is, it, is it innate in you or did you just well, work it out? The, for anyone who's been in a career, you've been in finance most of your life. Yeah. You, you've, you've, you've absorbed so much information that I don't know through osmosis and reading and continual study. And that's what I did in aviation. I've absorbed all the lessons we've learned in 115 years since the Wright Brothers flew in 1903. And you just absorb this stuff, but you don't realize how powerful it is. There was a, an amazing or terrible accident in 1970, the late 70s, where two jumbos collided on a runway. And NASA caused a new study called Human Resources and Crew Resource Management. Um, NASA caused this to be taught to pilots all around the world. It changed the whole industry. And now, last year, 50 people died in that commercial aviation out of four and a half billion passenger travelers. So aviation is truly safe and truly resilient, and I've been absorbing that. So I have to give credit to all my ancestors that have passed that on. Um, but you can't predict that, that resilience exists in other industries. So that's you. I mean, do you think every captain is similar? 
Well, I was writing a, an encyclopedia or a book called Handling the Big Jets. It's really how aircraft are designed, how they're certified, and therefore, if you understand that, how to work an aircraft. In, in my latest book, I talk about the brain, how it works and why, so you can work out how you can optimize your life. So I've always gone deep into the foundation knowledge of the industry so that when things don't work properly, I can use that foundation like the roots and, and you can... As your knowledge increases, you, you're, you're building up the branches and the, and, and the leaves of knowledge. But it needs a good foundation, and I've always worked hard on that foundation. These days, as automation gets stronger and stronger, and we're surrounded by back, black boxes with, with protocols that we're not allowed to, to understand, um, we, we can become victims to automation, but we have to resist that. We have to know. Mean you, you mean by that we defer to automation? We defer to it. We also have automation amnesia, that when, when you don't use something very often, you forget how to do it. If I gave you a slide rule and said multiply two numbers, you might not remember how to do it because you haven't done it for 20 years. But so we have to, when, you, when your car breaks down, you can pull over and be towed home. But we don't have that luxury in the air. We have to recover an aircraft, an electronic aircraft that's broken, we have to recover to the ground, whether it's stalled, inverting, spinning, or on fire. That requires a base level of knowledge. It requires continual study, a lifetime of learning, a lifetime of adaption, change, making errors, failing well, failing fast, learning, adjusting, retrying. You, we accept human failure in aviation, but we accept failure. So we, we accept failure in the little things so we get the big things right. These are lots of structures that build into this, these elements of resilience so that when, when things are good, we can follow procedures. In your bank, probably there's a procedure for everything people do. But when we hit the unknown unknowns, the unexpected low probability event, how do we recover from that when there's no rules and procedures? Now we have to be creative and think novel solutions. This is what pilots are taught, and this is part of the elements of the resilience. How important do you think that um – was that a life-changing event for you that, that, that in eight years ago? Absolutely. Uh, I wrote QF32, which is what happened. I then traveled the world. I've spoken to ICAO, which is the head of aviation. I'm about to talk to a subgroup of the World Health Organization, which is as high as you can get into medicine. I've, tra- I've seen the best industries, the worst, the best of breed companies. I've met the most fantastic CEOs, Anne Picard, who was chairing Shell in Australia. And I've seen some examples of bad management, which might have been BP during Macondo Basin, which was Deepwater Horizon. So you, you, you discover what works, what doesn't work. You, you, you can apply what we have in aviation. You hope to apply it and see where, where it's being used, maybe in finance, where maybe it's not being used in medicine. Medicine needs a whole lot more human factors. And medicine is very unsafe. The third cause of death for human people error. is... is, is, is is medical errors and mistakes. Yeah. That's a third cause of death. Now, we should not, we have just culture in aviation. We don't criminalize people for honest mistakes. No one goes to work in finance or the hospitals to make a mistake, but we have to learn from them and adjust so we don't repeat them. This is what aviation does well. This is what medicine, for instance, doesn't. Why is aviation well? Is it because the risks are so high? Or the, or, risks, or, or, or the problem, or, or sorry, the, the gravity, of the outcome. So well, high. well, well. You see, this is where statistics are so bad because, as I said, fifty people died last year in aviation. At least a quarter of a million people died in American hospitals from accidents and errors. But they're single events, so we don't tr- we don't treat them with severity. We have it, 
we need to. If med- if if medicine was in the aviation uh, was scr- was um, scrutinised as much as aviation, the whole medical industry should be shut down. Charlie Munger, who is um, Buffett's Warren Buffett's partner, said middle of this year, I am a on the board of a large American hospital, and the whole American medical system is broken and it's unfixable. That was a remarkable comment, mm. but I disagree. I disagree because I've seen what happens in aviation. He, Charlie hasn't. I can see what works in aviation and I can apply that. So we need to change medicine from the top down. We need to change the systems and the governance. And then we look at procedures. And only then when you've handled that, do you start to look at the clinicians. And then you might start to look at human error. So this why, is what, but, but, why is it aviation has been built in such a robust way? I mean, where's that come from? Maybe we're only talking about Qantas. Uh, it's really happened you know, since the earliest days of flying through the Second World War when people were standardising designs of cockpits and after the war there was a comet, which was that British aircraft, pressurised aircraft that was exploding. We lost about seven aircraft, three on takeoff and four and four in the no, four, three in the air and four on takeoff. So the world was discovering what was happening with these new jet pressurized metallic aircraft and they could apply the lessons. Boeing held off with the, 70, the uh, 707 and McDonald's held, held off with the DC-8. They benefited from the, from the Comet's failures. And so aviation has tended to share information and everyone pulls it so that they, they help each other. In medicine at the moment, I was at the John Hunter Hospital last week and they're using paper. They're still using paper. It took 15 minutes to sign in. And at the changeover brief, there were four people holding notepads making copies. I mean, this happened has not happened in aviation, I don't know, for decades. So I don't understand this. Um, so aviation shares knowledge. We learn from our successes, our near misses. And a near miss is things that go wrong but are not detected. If you get away with something, you might say, phew, that's lucky. I won't tell anyone. But in aviation, we report that near miss, mm. knowing that we won't be penalised for reporting things. Yeah, because you're more, much more accountable. It, the whole thing is accountable. The whole process. We know is who we're responsible. We're responsible to passengers. We're accountable to our company. That's really important. You know, business leaders. If I ask business leaders who are they responsible to, and you might find this very challenging. Most people say you're responsible to the shareholder. No, no, business leaders. Are responsible. The board board members that are directable to their to the uh, company. They're responsible for the company. In other words, they'll go to jail if they don't act in the best interest of the company. Mm. So um, you have to know who you're responsible to, who you're accountable to, and then you can set your values in, and your beliefs that you can pass down in a culture to the whole teams. And when you tell people what the culture is, and you tell them how to get there, then as they as people are meeting. The aims of that culture and the values, they get a dopamine hit, they get a high, they join in, they take risks for you, and the company surges. So setting the right culture is the first part. Well, it's a very interesting thing you're, you're raising now, this, um, uh, the, who, who are directors and or executives responsible for, because Dr. Ken Henry uh, this week in the Royal Commission was asked, he's a chairman of NAB, and uh, he was asked um, what has been the problem, and he basically said that the um, the – obligation under the corporation's law for directors of a company is to um, act in the best interest of the shareholders. But in actual fact, he's saying he's asking for what he's saying that should come out of the Royal Commission is a recommendation that um, um, 
directors and executives should be acting in the best interest of a number of stakeholders, including shareholders, but also customers, and uh, and and change change the the legal obligation, so called legal obligations, and uh, and and he's saying that um, that 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 culture can only be changed if um, those people who are responsible at the top of the boards and the, the major executives have actually started to think, hang on. We've got customers we can look after. We've got a we've got an obligation in relation to the banking reputation, the reputation of banks generally. That's another obligation you have, legal, actual clear black and white legal obligation you have. It's um, and right now it's sort of quite, it's just one way, one sided, according to him. And um, and it's sort of an interesting process we are we as a nation are going through, looking at big corporations. Now this would this includes aviation corporations, but you guys are doing a pretty good job. But hospitals is another good example. Healthcare. Banking, they're the two most important things we live with. Apart from the fact we fly, we uh, want to be healthy and we want to know when we go to hospital, we're going to be look, get looked after to the best possible, opt- the optimum way. And when we do our banking, we're not going to get ripped off because, you know, we've got nowhere else to go. We have to use a bank. There's no alternatives. There's no other system out there. Um, it's sort of mandated to us. Um, and it's sort of, it's interesting right now, I think we are going through in our nation, probably globally, I can't speak globally, but certainly in this country, a reevaluation of our responsibilities as corporate executives, a reevaluation of who we are responsible to. And that sort of brings me to what you are currently doing. Your new book called Fly, um, and what you've, I mean, your life changing event, what you've learned and what you've built on since eight years ago. I mean, you've built, you've done a lot of work, a lot of research um, around concepts like resilience um, and importance of crisis management, or importance of resilience, I should say, in crisis management. Now, our listeners are small business owners, medium business owners, but they all have crisis. Every one of them has a crisis nearly every day, unfortunately for them. And there's a lot to be learned out of the lessons that you've learned at the big end of town. But nonetheless, that same process is ridiculously important to these individuals. Why did you write this book? And can you tell me something? I mean, I'm always fascinated by um, neuroscience. And there is neuroscientific. This is not just Richard de Crepney's opinions. There is sort of some scientific science around all this. What have you learned? What's the right, science? There's a, there's a lot packed in in that statement. Um, first of all, if you want to have a good argument around a dinner table, ask who board directors are responsible to, and and because what I said is the business, and that will always create a lot of consternation. But it's been researched in the UK and Australia and, and America, and I, I believe that it holds. Because if you don't know who you're responsible to, you cannot set your values and your, and your beliefs, and then you really can't lead without that. You can't, you can't motivate and inspire people if you don't know what you stand for. If you're chasing the what, if you're chasing a profit, and, and you don't tell them how to do it or why, then you will get corrupt and illegal activity. So you have to, you have to the leader must specify responsibility and the leader must know who's responsible to and then set the right values. Um, the, the interesting thing is if you go to a, a surgery in, um, th- there's been areas where a friend of mine asks in the surgery, who's the most important per- per- person in the you surgery, mean in the, in the, in the, in the, uh, the surgery, in the operation room. Yeah. And people say, Oh, maybe the surgeon or maybe the anesthetist. And he said, no, it's the patient. Yeah. So sometimes we honestly don't know who we're responsible to. Is um, there a bit of arrogance? Do you think in the in the healthcare industry around that ego? Uh, did you say 
Yeah, all that. Massive ego. Mm. Loss of face. I'm a doctor. I'm the GP. Well, well I'm the surgeon. In, it's in everyone has ego. That's fine. And, and the biggest problem where ego comes up is in the family, is in, is in your own personal relationship. Half the people will be divorced in their life. Mm. Now, I know that that's unavoidable in some cases, but, but think of the, the psychological trauma, the financial trauma, trauma from divorce. Now, and that will, that's the biggest cause for loss of resilience in any particular person. And generally because people can't hold their ego, their ego becomes more important than their partner. They can't subjugate their ego and they get divorced. I have a just culture test in fly, which we use in aviation. So we allow honest human mistakes, but only one in about a hundred people I've asked will do that just culture test in their own relationship at home. In other, way, in other words, aviation does, has a culture that doesn't even exist in your home. And that's why half the people I think are not resilient overall. But um, when we talk about resilience, I, I discovered the eight elements of resilience that, are, that can be applied to your personal and corporate life. And that's knowledge, training, experience, teamwork, leadership, crisis management, decision-making, and risk. They're the eight elements and essential. None of them, we're not born with any of them. We have to learn them. But I've, and I've also included post-traumatic stress because people will all suffer that at some point in their life. And they need to understand that we, that it's a normal reaction to stress. We can recover from it. And just like a business failure, there can be growth from trauma. So I've included post-traumatic stress, but all these elements I've included over this foundation of neuroscience. I explain how the brain works, what the brain is, how the brain works, which we call the mind why we need to sleep, how we manage knowledge, how we manage all these elements of resilience. How do we use neuroscience to be a better leader or to form teams that stay together and will take risks for you? How do we make best decisions? How do we keep calm in a crisis when everyone else around us is losing us? How do we resolve our fear of flying? Because many CEOs can't travel. They have a fear of flying. So that, that substrate of neuroscience, which I love, it's, it's the, just as much as I like looking at the engines of the A380, the brain is the engine of the body. Running on only 20 watts, it's pretty amazing. Four million sensors coming in, 80 billion, 80 million, 80, no, 80 billion neurons and 100 trillion synapses. It's just a, a whole lot of switches, but it is truly amazing. And I know that you have an interest in it, mm-hmm. but we can, answer, we can explain all these elements of resilience and resolve them ourselves. In I'm not trying to way. tell you. I'm not trying to tell you what to do. I'm saying... This is the correlation between how the brain works and knowledge, how the brain works, learning something, how the brain works and making a decision, and then you can apply them yourself. So can, can you just explain to everyone who's listening, though, what you mean by neuroscience? Because a lot of people don't quite know what that means, um, as opposed to sort of the old school psychology, um, which is a different set psychology of Psychology is probably how, the, how, how we act and behave. More about behaviour. Behaviour. And, and the neuroscience is looking at the construction of the brain, the components, the neurons, the synapses, which are the connections. So in the brain, there's a bit for each neuron, which stores a bit of information. Imagine a glass as being one neuron that stores something, yes or no. And then that connects through on average to a thousand other neurons by synapses. So everything, I call that a knowledge factor of a thousand. So anyone, if I think of Mark Burris, I think of finance, I think of decrepitly, I think of genes. So that's three connections. Well, the, each neuron in our brain connects to a thousand. That's a knowledge factor of a thousand. When you're writing down knowledge as part of your work, 
you probably don't have a knowledge factor that would exceed one mm. in, because we don't generally make notes. So I've had a knowledge base for 30 years that I, I've got a, a, a knowledge index of 10 because I hyperlink massive hyperlinks through my knowledge base. But, but we, this is how the brain works. If we understand that, then we understand that we can remember things by associating, associating it with others. We understand that a memory of a traumatic event for a veteran soldier, all the synapses point to bad memories that flash back when the right senses are presented to the brain. The brain doesn't so much think, the brain just resolves what it sees on the input. And so, but if we understand we can change those synapses, we can dissolve the pain of post-traumatic stress and then learn from it. So when it comes to flying, or it comes to a crisis in a sort of neuroscientific way, are you saying to me that it's, there's not as much thinking, and please sort of indulge me in this because I, I don't know, um, I'm only asking, but is it, it's not so much thinking, but it's more sensing from what you see in front of you, the instruments or whatever it is you're seeing, say your eyes and your ears and you know, you're sensing things and those senses are sending in a message into your brain and your brain then picks up all the knowledge and all the experiences that it's had through neurologically through over the years and forms an opinion as to what to do. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Four million senses coming in simultaneously to the brain. The brain only runs on 20 watts mm-hmm. and so we can't, it does process all these inputs and anything which is expected, it, it, any sense that meets the predictions are ignored. So you're not aware of your big toe till I tell you. Now you can feel mm. it. You're not aware of your breathing rate till I tell you. Mm. Now you can, now mm. you're aware of it. So the body shields us from overload. If it doesn't shield us, if we don't have that protection, we become autistic. We are overloaded, mm. right? Shields us and we have a very small uh, mental model of our existence that is only the pertinent stuff. So at the moment, your mental model doesn't include the weather outside until there's a thunderclap and your brain surfaces that as an exception. So we have to understand that our mental model is always just a tiny, you know, less than, you know, 0.1% of what is really going on around us. Our mental perception of what happens to us is different to the mental perception of your producer sitting next to you who has a different thing. So if we're, when we're in a crisis, we need to, we have a need to have a, a, a merged mental model of everyone, a little bit like the Borg in Star Trek, merge the mental models. And now we can gain the experience from everyone. Some people will be have tunnel vision. Some people will have a broad vision. So, so this mental model we have is tiny. The mental model includes a body model that can be an error. We can have phantom limbs. We can have alien limbs. Um, wh- why is it that a, that a woman who is weak can lift a car off a child. her child? Because the mental model says, I'm changing how much your, your limbs can use. So the ment- we have a virtual, re- we, uh, we, our perception of the body is a virtual reality. We have a virtual reality of our, what our body is, what our mental mind is, and our perceptions. So there are biases that change our mental model. There are illusions that change our mental model. What we see is is what we perceive is always an illusion mm. based on the brain. So when we understand that, now we can apply it to, to crises. When things scare us, do we get the fear response, which is fight, flight, or paralysis? Um, we don't want that. So we have to understand our mental model and how it's working, and we need to practice things so that when something goes wrong, we can sort of predict it. For instance, if there's a lightning strike, you know that a thunderclap will come. 
So your brain, your slow brain is telling your fast emotional brain, don't get scared when you hear the thunderclap. Dog can't do that. Dogs always hate thunder. So when we under, if we can train ourselves to, to build up our pre prediction skills, and that's all the brain is really designed for, to predict the future so we can survive and reproduce. If we can keep, if we keep our predictions far enough in front, a situational awareness, situational awareness is what's happened, what's happening, and what's going to happen. Providing we keep our vision ahead and we're predicting, we will keep calm and we can manage the crisis. Can I, get, can I dumb it right down then? And so let's say, um, I don't know, uh, somebody's running a business, it's a small business, um, and uh, they know they've got a bit of stress and cash flow, um, and, but they've got their bass coming up down, you know, in three months' time. And the poor bugger's up every night, of the, every night just stressing the head off out about it. Um, given what you've just explained, is there something you would say to that individual um, to help them deal with that? I know that feeling. We've run a software company. Um, my wife runs it for the last 35 years, and she's had many sleepless nights. I mean, you know that the business leader is always, business owner is always the last person to get paid. Mm. So when you are awake at night, with these and you can't sleep because of the thoughts of um, insolvency you need you need to accept the reality of where you are don't fight it don't don't worry about what's happened fight the enemy in front if you keep looking behind you're going to walk into a wall accept your reality of financial reality that's point one which which you can apply to saying well except you have cancer if mm. someone tells you just don't fight it accept it and then give yourself time create time Fine, if for pilots, creating time is having fuel on the airplane. We put more fuel on the airplane if the weather gets bad so we can hold and think and bring up options. So if time gives you options. So try and create time. Try to stop a deadline if you can. And once you take the stress of that first deadline, once you can extend it, once, once you can clear up your mind to give you time, then you can get rid of this fear factor that's saying, fight, flight, or freeze. Mm. That's the fear response, which is the emotional part of the brain. It's the amygdala. Mm. That's firing off saying, I'm panicking, I'm sweating, I, my digestive system shut down, my immune system shut down, so now I'm going to get sick. You've got, if you're worried about these things, you have to stop that emotional response. Allow your logical slow brain, which is the cortex, to take over and to look for ideas. Solve the problem. Don't, don't be stressed and panicked by the emotional brain that there's a dog reacting to thunder. Have a slow, logical mind. Ring people. Ask for ideas. If you are truly lost and you have no idea what to do, try even inverting the logic, which is what we did on QF32. Which and means what? Well, I, Gene Kranz did this. Apollo 13 was um, going to the moon. An oxygen tank exploded. And in Houston control, the controllers were the the space controllers were melting down. They were seeing so many errors, they didn't know what was happening, and there were too many things wrong. It's, this is the glass half-empty approach. You're told everything that's wrong and it overloads you. Gene saw that they were overloaded and he called out, gentlemen, stop wondering about what's broken and focus on what's working. That's inverting the logic. Glass half-full. Same with uh, disability. If you're a, an amputee, don't worry that you've lost a leg. Be proud you have one good leg and use that leg to its max. The fastest skier a few years ago was a one-legged downhill racer. 
fastest person mm. on skis. Use your abilities. Don't focus on your disabilities. So invert the logic. Look at what you have. Look at the positives. Glass half full approach. And you might actually, if you can work them from a foundation of knowledge, which might be the legal system, or for me, it's understanding the engines, or it's understanding the neuroscience, you can build up an alternate procedure from the ground up that will keep you alive. So, so on the example I gave you then, I mean, you just said, because I think it's a really important point. A, a, a partner of the law firm I worked for many, many years ago once said to me, time is your greatest friend and in, in when there's a crisis, when, when you're acting for a client, um, you've got to buy them time. Through the, and you could do it through the legal system. You can buy time through the legal system in those days. Delay, 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 and somehow you work out a solution you, or you can negotiate a position. Um, let's say on the example I just gave you the small business owner, um, we were talking about a bass problem. They're, they're running out of money. They're, they're, the revenues in and the expenses out aren't going to give them an opportunity to be able to pay the bass, which is coming up. So a good example to buy time there might be just to ring up the ATO and say, look, I don't have the money. Um, I would. Could you put me on a payment plan? And at least that puts you in a position that you can sort of sit back and then start to work out a strategy and some tactics around, assuming they accept that. That gives you some time. So buying time is incredibly important whether you're – as opposed to – and then you can work out what strengths do I have? What things have I got here that can make it work? Well, well you did – you put to make two points. What Make time. Two, ask someone else for help. Ask for, ask for information. Ask for ideas. As many ideas as you can have. Brainstorm. And you might find a good solution like that. Um, talk to your accountant. Talk to your accountant. Tell the tax office you can't pay straight away. You should be critical of yourself that you got to that position that you weren't following your cash flow and predicting your cash flow. But do that advance. after you've spoken. do that afterwards. Yeah, yeah. But 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 you know, take that to look at later. But but in that you have to solve the immediate problem. Get create time. Get the tax office off your back. So then you can go to your accountant and you can see how you got there and where you can how you can get out of it. What expenses can I change? What can I reduce? Where I can get some more income? Can I go and then talk to my bank Correct. to get a line of credit, et cetera? I mean, for you people listening to this, um, I mean, I hope you're getting all this because whilst Richard might sound like you're, he's talking about things that are really complex and maybe are beyond your sort of your your category as a small business or medium-sized business, business, actually all this stuff is stuff that you should be under, trying to understand at least, and I recommend you buy his book too, because it does have um, implications as to how to run your business. Because whether you're flying a QF32 or a A380, as in Rich's case, or whether you're flying a small business, could be delicatessen, could be a, um, a, a, a service station, there's going to be crisis that you need to manage. And what Richard's here to explain to you is how best to manage those crises. And I don't care who you are, including me, there's a crisis every week. And putting out bushfires in my business is something I tend to do all the time. And I'm sure you're all the same because, you know, small business owners, it's the loneliest place in the world when you're out there running, running, running a small business. And the noise in your own head sometimes can get out of control. And um, this is about techniques to control your own, your own mind, your own brain. And uh, I'm, after the break, I want to really examine what Richard's done and why he has written this book and where he wants to take it to.
Welcome back to The Mentor. I'm with Richard DeCrepney, um, Captain Richard DeCrepney, who um, had, has a, had a life-changing experience in QF32, which he, by the way, he, he and his team were able to land safely and, and all the passengers got off safely and they, they lived to tell the tale. And what, what that, and I said life-changing because Richard then has sort of honed in on a number of the experiences which he had in that event and he's sort of taken upon him, himself, he still, still flies aeroplanes, but he's t- taken upon himself to actually sort of educate people about these concepts that help him and his team get through that crisis. And one of the things he keeps talking about and that we keep hearing about is this concept of resilience. Um, how does resilience resil- – well, what do you mean by resilience, Richard? That's the first thing. I mean, I would need to know what you mean by it. Resilience is being able to survive thing when things go wrong. Now, I like the description of a suspension system on a car. When something hit a pothole, the spring will let the shock be absorbed, but it will bounce and ricochet. And we see the share market go up and down and these un, un, um, dampened results. So you can have the spring to absorb and you recoil and you might have to retract. If there's a pandemic, you might have to go home and eat food that you've stockpiled at home. So you're withdrawing, the spring's compressing, and then you slowly respond and you recover to that. So you change and you adapt. So resilience is absorbing things when going wrong and handling them and returning to a stable path or, or even coming out stronger. Resilience is recovering from things that go wrong. Um, some t- many people, but p- particularly in some people I've met in the finance industry, they think I'm an expert. I've been in this trade now for 30 years. I know what I'm doing. I don't need any government to tell me where I've gone wrong. I or don't a Royal want, Commission. I don't want this Royal Commission. What do they know? And I'm an experienced person, to which I answer, well, experience, even for pilots, can be a curse. For a doctor who doesn't keep his experience trained up or a pilot who doesn't keep learning new procedures, um, if you don't keep developing, you drift to failure. So experience can really be a curse if you don't commit to a lifetime of learning and adaption and change. So we, and sometimes we have to have constructive destruction of knowledge that we had that really isn't needed anymore. So we have to understand that the knowledge that is acceptable today will not be acceptable tomorrow. Maybe even a career may not even be around tomorrow. So we have to continually learn, commit to a lifetime of learning, adjust and adapt we can be confident. That's great. Confidence builds courage and intrepid fearlessness. But if we're overconfident, if we think we know it all in aviation, that's the second before we make a big mistake. So we need a chronic unease, which means you always look for the things that might go wrong. You identify the threats and then you either stop them or you mitigate them. So experience is a good ground base, but you need to keep working on it. How does that sort of affect people who maybe do too many things? So let's say um, in my case I was um, – I had too many things coming coming at me and I and maybe – and I've actually done – I have experienced this once before when I was a younger guy, much younger, but where you think to yourself, well, I'm bulletproof, I can do all that. I can I – can, I can, um, run this business, I can run the other business, I can think about a new business – um, I can also um, uh, ex- uh, uh, go through my mother, who's currently right now in hospital with motor neuron disease. She's dying. Um, I can sort of, I can deal with that. I can help my dad out. I can deal with that. I can prepare for a boxing match against a really good fighter. I can do that, and I can prepare for three boxing matches. Yeah, whatever. Um, it, it, sometimes we tend to take on too many things, um, 
and people do this in business all the time. Um, how important is it for us to just to concentrate on one thing or is it okay just to do too many things? We, we can multitask in that we, the, we can allow the fast brain to hit a tennis racket, so tennis ball. So we don't concentrate. If we had to think about how we hit a tennis ball, we would miss the ball every time. Mm. You train your golf stroke. You, Federer will train his hitting stroke before every match to keep his fast brain hitting the ball. So his slow brain is concentrating on the game plan. That's the only way you can multitask. Fast brain, habitual, slow brain, game plan, future planning. Um, you cannot multitask the slow brain, the, the cortex, which is the thinking brain. So we, we need to keep a focus. We need to keep our situation awareness, which is, again, what has happened, what is happening, and what will happen. We must always keep our, our view ahead. We must be able to keep accurate predictions of what's going to happen in our business, in the industry, community with the distractors we need to keep a situational awareness now the problem is that if you lose a situational awareness you don't realize you've lost it because you don't have it so how do you you can keep loading yourself up with tasks until you start to lose situational awareness for the things you need to do so if you find yourself surprised oh i haven't thought of that or if you find yourself getting angry because things aren't happening the way you're expecting or if you find yourself blaming other people because things aren't happening, then these are all signs that you're losing situation awareness. You should be, always be able to predict so far ahead that there are no surprises and you can keep calm. So if you can load yourself up while you're keeping calm, but when you recognize these, these symptoms of losing situation awareness, that's time to prioritize, drop the irrelevancies, and focus on the tasks that are important. Okay, so I get that. It makes sense. But you have to you have to identify that you're stressed. Mm. If a pilot is stressed, he'll ring up and say, "I'm I'm not comfortable to come to work," and no one will ever question them. Really? Um, pilots, uh, if they're tired, they say, "I'm tired," and they will never be criticised. This is one of the foundation's things. It is not. It is. It might be a badge of honour just for 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 medic, medical clinicians to say they've worked thirty hours straight. But how would you like to be on an aircraft no, where the pilot says I've just worked for thirty hours straight? Well, I don't want Let's a medical clinician away. either doing something so, to me thirty so hours either. We have rules and protections that make aviation safe that might not exist elsewhere. So if you find you're stressed, you know what? Stay home. Just find your sense of, of calm. Do you and, think that should be employed in say banking? Right, you want to say? Well. If, if you've got cortisol and adrenaline running through you, you're not thinking straight and the fear factor is there. You, you'll be impetuous. You won't think properly. You might get angry and the, and the anger is now pumping the senses of everyone around you. So when you swear, when you curse, when you frown, then, then you are pumping the senses of the same and, and generating the same feelings in everyone around you. That's why everyone loves to be around a happy person. Mm. So um, you need to be conscious that if you're setting the wrong mood, it's best to stay away. So when you're on a plane, you're the CEO, when you're the captain of the plane, when you're, what would you say to a CEO in a business environment who are having a, a crisis meeting? What would you say to him or her as to how they should conduct themselves in that meeting, the crisis um, meeting? Well, I, I'd like – I wanted to mention when you mentioned before, when the crisis happens, uh, my son was involved in a, in a boating incident and he rang up saying, I'm about to be washed onto the rocks. The engine stopped and I can't start it and I'm about to be killed on the rocks. What do I do? And I said, Alex, why don't you throw out the anchor and call me back in 10 minutes? And he called back 15 minutes later. He said, I put the anchor out, stopped the boat going, you know, being washed up on the rocks. I lift the engine. I found the leak. I fixed it and now we're okay. 
So, so you really need, you know, drop the anchor, create the time. And then you, you, as a leader, you must, there are plenty of books on this, on creating your sense of calm, slow down your breathing rate. Don't move much, sit down, you know, generate and, and which is starting to pump your senses in the same way and do everything to keep a sense of calm. And then others around you will keep theirs. And then, then you take on your role as a leader and gather information, make good decisions and delegate tasks. People who say, I fear failure. What do you think of that? Oh, massive ego. Yeah. That's a major problem. Ego is the enemy of teamwork and ego is, ego will get in the way of your marriage. It'll get in the way of everything. It'll get in the way of your business. You have to shed your ego. You have the, the best leaders, the level five leaders, this is Adam Grant's book. Um, the level, the best leaders uh, have a sense of a, a realization that they are vulnerable. They will make mistakes and they're humble. And, and they will, I tell people before every, my crew, before my flight, I will make mistakes this flight, guaranteed, not intentional mistakes. I demand that you tell me when they happen. You can be as pedantic as you want. Just prioritize when to tell me and we will debrief two times during this flight. So I need to know, and, but you prioritize. Now I'm pre presenting my vulnerability. I'm being humble that, that I will make mistakes. That invites people to check me and invites people into the team. It bonds them together. They take more interest. They're not afraid to manage upwards until the leader is making a mistake. The leader is still the leader. He can still override, but this is how you bond a team. And it means you also, uh, yes, the leader's getting hit because he's making mistakes and people are telling him, but what's the aim? What is the, what is the responsibility? The responsibility is not to me as a captain. People are not, the surge, doctors in, in, in a surgical room are not responsible to the surgeon. They're responsible to the patient. Mm. And if the doctors or the surgeons or the pilot's ego has to suffer because they made a mistake, you wear that willingly because you know who you're responsible to. I'm, a pilot is responsible to the passengers and accountable to the company. Now that's very clear. So, so when you see, I think it was UBS Bank where a rogue trader took up a position mm. for $30 billion about 10 years ago. And yes, it was a terrible, he, he took up forward, forward um, contracts three times the wealth of the bank. But when they did research, they found out that the board and all the management and leadership knew about this and did nothing about it. So yes, the rogue trader did terrible things and he could have destroyed the bank. But when you look at the contributing factors, you identify the culture was wrong, the system was wrong, the board was wrong, the leadership, the management, the procedures. They, they, they allowed um, the trader to, to have his wife working at the bank to do all the back office work. These are procedures. So before you go and blame the individual, and I'm not blaming the surgeons and the clinicians in hospitals for being having a terrible accident rate. When you submit to hospital, your risk of dying from a hospitalization is equivalent risk to dying from 70,000 one-hour flights, right? Hmm. This is a significant difference. I'm not blaming the doctors or the clinicians. I'm blaming the whole system, the governance from the federal government down and the procedures. This is where you focus. So no, I do not blame individuals for errors. I will first look at the systems, the governance and the procedures. And then you made an interesting comment. I mean, this is a well-used, nearly a proverb, 
fail fast. I mean, pe- people say, if you're going to fail, fail fast. I mean, but maybe you need to explain because, I, I mean, I think people just use it as more a, as a, more proverbial than it is them understanding the substance of it. What does that mean? What do you mean by that fail well, fast? Well, it's, be- it's because we, we value fa- a loss twice as much, a loss of a certain amount twice as much as a gain of the same amount. So we always... The, the, our brain values our it. Our brain right. values it. Mm, yeah, so we remember th- we remember the deals that went wrong. We don't remember the things that went right. So you remember the exams you failed at school. You don't remember the exams you did got distinctions in mm. so much. We always remember remember the, the negative things. It means we will hire fast, but we ca- we're slow to admit that we made a bad decision later. Mm. So we fire slow, mm. and we do a whole lot of damage because of that. So if you if you have a plan. Set the goalposts, set the the, the, the aims and th- thresholds that you must meet along the way, watermarks. Milestones, yeah. Milestones. And if you find and, and do all your work up front and then as the project is progressing, if you don't meet these milestones, then ask why. Has the situation changed? If the situation's changed, maybe we should change the plan. If the system, system situation has not changed, then maybe the plan was wrong. So when you start to get surprised, you haven't looked, you haven't got your situational awareness out as far as you'd like it. These are signs that the plan wasn't right and maybe you should consider shutting it down. Mm. I mean, this is a no, very it's, broad. I know, I know, but overshoot. it's an important thing because a lot of, a lot of people persist and persist and persist and they and don't they know when to stop. And they meet deadline after deadline after deadline. They find an excuse. They say, well, something's changed. Yeah. You know, um, and, and. I'm not going to say whether I what side I am in the argument, but with the Brexit the Brexit discussion, the people who voted on it maybe didn't know all the facts. Now the situation's changed in many people's eyes because now they're aware of different repercussions. So should there be another Brexit vote because the system's changed in the Reassess. voters' mind? Reassess. Go back and make another decision. Um, so be. Again, if your plan is going to plan, if your plan is going properly, then persist. If you find the plan isn't working, and the situation hasn't changed, but you can't you can't explain why, then then maybe shelve it. Maybe it's not working. Do another plan or shelve it. So this is these are clues to failing fast mm. because in small business we see people who are blinded by the positive side of saying. And I have an example in Fly of a woman who was starting a. A, a, a net, an internet startup. She thought the market was valued at a billion dollars. She would own it, and so all these forecasts, all these plans. She actually couldn't write code, so she couldn't check anything. But but person and group after group missed deadline after deadline, and after three or four years, she blew all her money. She they sold their house, they mortgaged their house, well, they sold the house to pay for it. They ended up getting divorced, and she became bankrupt. And she still has this startup and she's never recognized that it's got the idea is gone. An idea is only useful for six months on the internet. So, so she, she failed, she didn't fail fast and it cost her her money and her marriage. And I don't know that she necessarily still understands that. We have to avoid that. Sometimes a reassessment is that idea failed. I've got to come up with a new one. We're an early adopter in the, in many parts of the IT industry, and we would I like the term surfing the edge of chaos with all these changes and innovations coming forward. You've got to try them to see if they're going to work, and and you're surfing the edge of chaos, and you're adjusting the whole time and adapting. And 
you have to accept that some things will fail. And providing we we had many failures, and that that was the mistake wasn't that we failed and recognized and got out. The failure the, the failure was the mistake was was having a failure we didn't recognize recognize early enough and get out quickly enough. Now we we had enough wins to keep us going and growing, and and the company did very well. But that was amongst an atmosphere of having many failures along the way. So fail fast, fail well, and just accept failure in your human condition, your company condition, fail in little things so you get the big things right. Just, I mean, one more question um, can I ask you is, um, do do you share that process with the the people on the plane, the the passengers? I mean, what do you share and what don't you share? Oh, I, um, people have a fear of flying because they don't, think they're in control. They can't mm. see where the aircraft's going. They don't, the aircraft shakes. Well, what caused the aircraft to shake? Did something get damaged on the airplane? Will the wings fall off? This is knowledge that's missing. They don't have control. They don't know what's about to happen. This, this, this is, and the emotional brain triggers um, panic. And so this is the base of all our fears, whether in a crisis or a spider walks on our face or fear of flying. So when we understand the stresses that cause people to panic in a crisis, and the, then the action, our actions during a crisis is to resolve those. So you tell them you can't communicate enough. When you think you've communicated enough, double it. And so we were in continual communications during the QF32. I tell them what was happening, what was about to happen, um, the time and the special requirements. It's, it's all written in, in fly. And, um, and then on the ground, I told them the full open disclosure. I said, I'm telling you the facts no one else knows this. When you go outside, the press will meet you. They're going to say that my airlines are lousy airline, Rolls-Royce make lousy engines, and the passengers were scared and the pilots are scared. Well, here are the facts. I said, when you go outside, you're going to know more than anyone else. Please feel free to take control of the media and tell them the facts. Um, and, and then I gave them a mobile phone number, which built trust. It meant if they had questions, they could call me. It meant that if I didn't answer their questions straight away, that was okay because they can call me back. Um, so giving the mobile phone, and, and it does another thing. It gives a single point of contact. Mm. So for everyone out there in a business, if you've got customers, make sure they have a single point of contact in the good times and triply in bad times because this is how you, if you don't, every person with a mobile phone is on social media and as a journalist and your brand, you will lose control of your brand in a crisis. And you must, if you want to keep it, keep control of your customers, communicate with them. And, and in our case, the brand came out stronger than we went in. So these are, again, you look at the motivators for fear and panic and you invert them and that turns out into the actions you have to do during a crisis. It's very interesting because, I mean, I keep going back to the Royal Commission, but NAB, the NAB chief executive and chairman were examined this week and, uh, I mean, they, and they were charging people money that they shouldn't have been charging and uh and and they i think they took the legal position that or they were advised by the in-house lawyer from what it seems to me anyway that um look this we don't we shouldn't go um offering things that people should wait for them to come back and ask us about you know their positions and that just now that's become known to the public um it's actually completely decimated their brand and they got so they're going to take so long to recover from that position, you know. Like in my business, Yellowbrick Road, we also had because of our data systems, we found that we had. I can't remember how many customers were, but there was ninety or a hundred and sorry, there's a hundred and fifty thousand dollars worth of fees 
Our system had charged clients, they weren't dead, but they were clients who had not what they call opted in for advice. Okay. Now we found this out way before the Royal Commission started. And we had a board meeting and I don't know why we decided, but we just said, contact every single person and we'll just pay them in full now, straight away. No, no discussion. And go, we went to the regulator and we told the regulator what our system had revealed. Um, and it was a system error. It was a, it was a problem. It, you know, we didn't know it was going to happen, but like, you know, we, unfortunately our, our data. Was it managed, an honest mistake? Honest mistake. It was an honest mistake. But, just but, culture to give honest mistakes. And we just went sad at everyone and we, and we had no issues with it. No, no problem. No, no. Everyone said, oh, thanks. People, in fact, who, who we gave refunds to were very happy. And you learned from it and you adjusted. And then we, we've gone back since and we've rebuilt our commission systems and our, you know, opt-in systems, all that sort of stuff. We spent like millions of dollars fixing it. But I think the mistake. Communicating it was very important, uh, and I mean, in our case, I don't know what I would have done, Richard, if it if it had been six hundred million dollars worth of money I had to refund. Mike, it was only one hundred fifty thousand dollars, but I would like to think I would have done the same thing. Well, you never let it get to six million. I, you see, I, I would not, probably not. But I, I reckon I can answer why you did that, because you knew you're wise. You know who you're responsible to. If you told your employees maximize profits, then you're chasing six million dollars. Mm. And the more they make, you don't care how they did it. You're just glad you've got to $6 million. The process, the system doesn't matter. You're interested in the why. Just get me there. That's the wrong way because we're driven by our values and beliefs, the why. So you, you're wise. You're why, who you're responsible to, why you do the things you do, why you get up in the morning, why you go to work. They're very clear and your staff inherit that and they will, and the culture and the care that you give to them, they'll support you and they'll look after you and the customer as well. So, so in Enron, where they were shutting off electricity grids for money, they're chasing the watts, or, um, or maybe some of the banks, if, if the why, if the values are wrong, and the, the, then how, how they do things, the, the watts that come out the back end, which is the indiscretions, they're to be expected, really. Yeah, and I don't think that, and to be honest with you, they're not legal matters either, they're they're more, I want to call them ethical matters. I mean, like if a customer's getting charged money that they're not supposed to be getting charged for, you should give money back, in particular if they're paying you. <laughs> that, so so what's your why in, in your bank? For me, I want to help people. I actually want to actually help people become more wealthy. I don't want to be there taking money away from them. And, and your staff know that? And yeah, they're going totally. to say, I'm not helping. It's our mission. We're not helping our producer by charging him for services we don't. Your why, that why is so simple and it's so effective and that will drive how they do things and what comes out the back end. And that's a really effective why. And, and we, need, we need the leaders to, to determine that. That sets The leader is the culture. The leader doesn't say what the culture is. The leader is the culture. How he thinks, acts, and communicates will, will, will drip through the whole corporate system. Everyone will inherit it. And when you just said we want to look after people, when if you tell me that as a worker and I look after someone, I'm getting a dopamine hit. I've just done something to, to satisfy Mark's why, something really simple in the corporate statement. And I, now I'm feeling good. So so explaining your whys of making it clear why and who you're responsible to, it's so simple, but it can be so pervasive. On an aeroplane, if, 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 if someone from my, anyone outside the cockpit tells me what to do, that could be corporate, um, anyone in the board, I am first responsible to the passengers. I'm accountable to my company. I'm responsible to passengers. I will always keep my passengers safe. No one on the board can tell me to do something that will. That's very good. You know what? That's, that's exactly what someone should have told the Royal Commission. I'm accountable to shareholders first, 
but I'm responsible to my customers and to and to the banking industry or to the financial services industry. You're accountable. You're account- and you've got to be like you know if 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 Shell's going to hold you accountable because they can remove you, great. Because they're the only ones who can remove. They you. can sack me later. That's fine. Fu- but I've got my passengers down on the ground. But I've got to look after my customers. And I've got to look after this license that the Australian government's given me to lend money and to take money from people. So yeah. I've got to. I've got to act in the right way. Um, uh, being That's a great way of putting is, it. Being sacked is a very inconsequential inconsequential result um, compared to the wise. Uh, a friend of mine walked into a large hospital in Victoria and he said, "Who are you were who are you were responsible to and accountable to?" And fifty percent of the people couldn't answer that question. So how do they go producing, who are they responsible to? I mean, this brings up all types of questions and this is where, so these are non-resilient industries. This is part of leadership is one of the elements of resilience. I, I actually, I think everyone should ask the question, who am I accountable and who am I responsible to? Great question. Great question. But you see, we, we are in disagreement because you said you're responsible to the shareholders. No, 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 no. I, I think that's the question that should be asked though. The, the, the current law makes makes directors responsible to their shareholders. But I think the, the, the word should be changed. I think they, they should be accountable now, to I hope I hope you can prove me wrong. I think the Corporations Act says you are accountable for the best interest of the company. You'll go you'll yeah. go to jail and the way it's if you inter- don't act in the best interest of the company. You are right and it's, but it's been interpreted as being that is in the best interest of the shareholders when Well what if the bank owns a subsidiary can the can the parent then tell the subsidiary what to do? If the bank owns a subsidiary, if, you, if your bank owns a subsidiary organisation, can you tell the board what to do? If you're the if you're the parent bank, can you just instruct the board what to do? No, the board of that subsidiary should be running that bank. But the, the shareholders is, the, is, is the the shareholders of the parent bank. The the shareholders, the directors of that bank are responsible to the the holding company, but they still got directors' responsibilities. You have to run the business properly. It's but great. It's, it's, it's it, a great discussion. It is a great, and that's what this royal commission is all about. By but, the way, but 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 you know, doesn't matter what where how the conclusion to this is. My point is, you must know who you're responsible. Hundred percent. Without that, that, you are lost. That's and I think that's one of the big things I've got out of this this discussion is accountability and responsibility, and it's a question you should ask. And and you may not be able to resolve it. I've had many arguments with with leaders in in the air force and and my airline. I have gone to the CEO of the airline to 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 say this is going wrong, and and you need to support me. Or I, if you don't, I'll just pay for it myself. But I'm responsible to the to to the to my people. I'm going to protect them. If you don't support me, I think you should. But if you don't, that's okay. I'll pay gladly out of my pocket. But I think you should. And I, in other words, where I spend money to protect my workers, um, I expect the management to support me. But if they don't, that's okay. But my responsibility is to my workers and the passengers. Uh, it's it's very clear. It's a great ethical conversation. And uh, not enough, And by the way, what all these various inquiries have been making, have, have been concluding in my mind anyway, um, is that there is just not enough thought around the ethics of responsibility and accountability. Just not enough thought about it out there. And well, I, you hear people say, "Look, it's my mistake. I take full responsibility." Well, you know they don't. Mm. Yeah, well, that's totally what's coming out of the inquiry. Responsibility to who? They, they they don't. They say it, but they yeah, don't mean it. They don't mean it. Totally don't mean it. Richard, Richard Krepney, Captain <laughs> Richard Krepney. This has been a fascinating discussion as usual. I I commend all our audience to buy the new book. Fly, but it's not a book about QF32. It sort of is, but it's not really. It's about all the stuff that Richard DeCrepney has learnt and that he's built upon after QF32 and that experience, that life-changing experience. 
Um, I'm hoping I'm going to get the one that he's been writing notes in in the back of and he's going to sign it for me. <laughs> it's sitting right in front of me. I keep thinking, I want those notes, I want those notes. Um, and I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Thanks, Richard. Marcus. It's great to be on your program. Thank you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.